Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, I've got a lot to say this morning, so let's get right at it. You'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Put your finger there, please. One of the critical principles in properly interpreting Scripture and therefore accurately applying Scripture is that we understand the context of the text that we're studying. This is a very critical reality today. We're in the middle of a text in Romans chapter 11. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about the context of the text before we look at the verses that we're going to cover. We're going to cover today Romans chapter 11, verses 16 to 22. But first of all, let me show you the context, specifically the pretext, what comes before the text that we're going to look at today. Well, Paul, in Romans chapter 11, what he is doing is he is answering some questions related to the Jewish people. The Israelite people. Now, I know that we're talking about Israel. We have for the past few weeks. I'm going to talk about Israel some more this morning. But this verse, this passage, this message is not primarily in what I'm going to preach to you about Israel. But you have to know what Paul is saying for the truth that God wants to speak to us right here in this day to make sense and be applied. So what Paul is doing is he's talking about Israel in Romans chapter 11, and he's asking and answering a couple of questions. And here's the first question. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Why does Paul ask that? He asked it for a very good reason. The Jews of Paul's day were in large part and mass number unsaved, cut off from Christ, outside of the promises of God, even though they were the people that God had made all of the promises to, given His Word to. They were the Jews, and the Savior, Jesus, had come as a Jew. But they had rejected Him. They had abused Him, persecuted Him, and called for His persecution at the hands of the Roman authorities. And so Paul asks the question, as he looks around at unsaved Israel, and he says, has God rejected the Jew? And his answer is absolutely not. Verses 2 down to verse 10 of chapter 11. Let me just give you the nutshell of that. He says, God has not fully rejected his people. Here's the proof. There's there's a remnant. There's a remnant of Israel that is saved. Though the vast number of them are unsaved, God has elected, he's chosen to keep for himself a small number of Jewish people as his very own possession. He's saved them and he is keeping them. That's the first pretext of the text we're going to study. Here's the second, Romans 11, 11, down to verse 15. Paul asks a second question in verse 11. So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, because the Jews rejected Jesus, because they stumbled over Him, 
Did they stumble so as to fall, meaning permanently? Did they stumble so as to fall so completely that they would never rise again? In other words, is God totally and once and for all time done with the Jew because of their rejection and treatment of Christ? And Paul answers in verses 12 down to verse 15, just like he answered the first question, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He says, God has not forever rejected His people. Not only has there always been a remnant, there's always going to be a remnant of Jews. And then he makes a statement in verse 12. He hints at what he's going to talk about later toward the end of the chapter. He says that one day there's going to be a quote, full inclusion of the Jew. Hold that thought in mind. Now let's jump to the post-text. What follows the text we're going to look at today? The post-text is this. Paul says in verse 26 of the 11th chapter that one day, on the final day, at the end of time, at the end of history, all Israel is going to be saved. That there is going to be this mighty move of the Spirit of God in the nation of Israel that is going to cause them to turn their hearts toward Jesus Christ who throughout history from 2,000 years ago up to today and until that final day that they have rejected. They're going to turn their hearts toward Christ. God is going to do that. He's going to move among them. Look at verse 26 that God will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is a part of the nation of Israel. That God is going to banish ungodliness from them. Verse 27, that He's going to take away their sins. So here's the pretext and the post-text of the text that we're going to look at today. Paul says that God has not fully rejected His people. There's always been a remnant. And God has not finally rejected His people. He's always going to keep some for Himself. And even in the end, He's going to bring a mighty revival in which the vast majority of the Israelites are going to be saved. What is the remnant is one day going to be the vast majority of the Jews saved. Pretext and post-text. Important to understand the text. So with that in mind, let's see what Paul continues to write as he describes the relationship between Israel and God and Israel and the Gentiles. Gentiles, there might be some Jews in here. That would be great, but if not, the majority of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. And so Paul is going to talk about this relationship between Jew and Gentile, again, regarding salvation. And he uses an illustration in verse 16 about the nation of Israel, the Jew. He uses two illustrations. Listen to them. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Before I apply that and show you what that means related to Israel, let's just take the concept in those two statements. Do you hear it? Paul is saying, 
if the first part of the dough is holy, then what's the rest of the dough? Holy. And if the root is holy, what's the branches of the tree? Holy. That's the principle that he uses here. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Paul has been talking since the beginning of chapter 9 about the dilemma with the Jew. The vast majority of them are unsaved. Clearly, he says they're cut off. So what is he saying here? He certainly can't be saying that all of the Jews of all time, all ethnic Israel are saved, are holy, are chosen of God and kept by Him. He certainly isn't saying that. So what is he saying? Well, he's referring to the entire picture that I showed you, not only in the pretext, but in the post-text. Because in the post-text, it says this, one day the entire tree is going to be holy. One day God's going to move mightily upon Israel. He's going to turn their hearts back to Christ. In the final day, there's going to be a mighty revival among the Jews, and the whole tree Because the root was holy, the whole tree is going to become holy. Because the first fruit of the dough was holy, it will all eventually be holy. So what he is going to do here now, in verses 17 down to verse 22 that we're going to look at today, he's going to take that second illustration, the root and the tree and branches, and he's going to expand it. He's going to teach us something about Jews and Gentiles. And listen carefully, there's some really important lessons that are going to come to us as Gentiles right here in this day. So incredibly relevant to where we are at right now. So he says in verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off. He's referring to the Jews there. They were the chosen people, but they continued in their rebellion. They rejected Christ, and so they were broken off of the vine. They were broken off from being connected with God, being a part of His covenant, be a part of His promises under His blessings. But if some of the branches, the Jews of Paul's day, were broken off, and you... He's writing to the Gentile church at Rome. Primarily, the Roman church was a Gentile church. And so he writes to them and says, And you, you Gentiles, although you're a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Stop there for a minute. Let me explain the terminology here. The wild olive olive shoots that were grafted into the vine, that's the Gentiles that are saved. The natural branches are broken off, the Jewish branches and some Gentile branches are grafted in to the vine. And what do they do? They share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. What is that? Well, it is the salvation being given now to the Gentiles. It is that the promises and the covenant of God that He had made with the Jew, 
now is true of the Gentile grafted in to Christ. Jesus is the true vine, and as we're grafted into him, a wild olive shoot now connected to Christ, all of the covenants that were promised to Israel, all the blessings that were theirs are now ours in Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying. So, Let's make sure that we understand the terminology here. Who is the root? The root is the patriarchs. It's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Who was the first Jew? It was Abraham. God came to Abraham, a pagan man in a pagan land, and he elected him. He just chose him because of who God is in himself. He chose Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm making you mine. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a great number of people from you. And those people are going to be a people of my own possession. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And then he continued it with Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. So the root of the tree, the first fruit, the first lump is the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the natural branches are ethnic Israel. And the wild olive shoots grafted in, that's Gentile believers. And being grafted in means to be saved and enjoy the blessings of God. So there's the terminology in the illustration so that you can understand what Paul is talking about. So what Paul does now is he uses this, writing to the Gentile believers at Rome, and he uses this illustration and teaching to give them some strong warnings. Listen to the warnings. Verse 18, he says to the Gentile Christians, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the Jews that were broken off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. One of the things that is here, I believe, is a strong warning against anti-Semitism. You understand what anti-Semitism is? It's being antagonistic toward the Jewish people. What I believe is that this was true even beginning in the early church in Paul's day. And Paul wanted to nip that in the bud. And so he is writing here and he's saying to the Gentiles, he's recognizing this and he's saying, don't you be arrogant toward the Jews, Gentile Christians. Don't you be arrogant toward the Jews who were cut off, who were outside of Christ. And here's what you need to remember. It's the root that supports you. It's the root that determines the tree, right? You want to know what kind of root is in the ground? You can tell the root by the tree and what's on it. If the root is an apple tree, what's going to come on the branches of the tree? Apples. It's the root that determines the fruit. It's the root that supports everything else that comes out of the root. And what Paul is saying is our roots, Gentile believers, are Jewish. Our roots are Jewish. The gospel was given first to the Jews. Jesus, the Savior, was a Jew that came. It's a Jewish gospel. 
So we need to make sure that as Gentile believers, we have the right attitude toward and treatment toward the Jew because the root supports us. Secondly, so number one, don't, the first warning is this, don't think down toward the Jew. Here's the second warning, don't think highly towards yourself. Gentile believer, don't think highly towards yourself. Listen, verse 19, 20, Paul says, then you will say, you Gentile believers, here's what you'll say, wow, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul says, that's right, they were. Remember what we talked about last week? Paul said, God used the apostasy of Israel, their rejection of Christ, as the opportunity to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Praise God, we get to be saved because of that. But listen, listen, Paul says, don't get arrogant, don't get boastful, don't misunderstand the truth here. Yes, branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in, that's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Here's what that means. Why are you as a Gentile in? Is it because God looked over the world and said, Oh, wow, I really made a mistake. The Israelites are really worse than the Gentiles. I'm picking the Gentiles now. No, that's not what happened. Paul is making that really clear right here. He said, the only reason that the Jews were cut off is because they had unbelief. And the only reason that Gentiles are saved is through faith. It's not that God sees something in you and says, oh, wow, you're better than the next guy, or you're better than the Jew. No, not at all. It's all about the grace of God that saves It's not about anything in you that saves. It's about the work of God. It's about the choice of God. It's about the calling of God and what God does and who God is. So don't for a minute think you're better than anybody else. Gentiles, don't for a minute think you're better than the Jews. Oh man, they're the ones that crucified Christ. They're the ones that called for his death, ladies and gentlemen. It was your sin and mine that put Jesus on the cross. So Paul is saying, not only don't look down toward the Jew, he's saying don't look highly on yourself. Don't become proud. Don't become proud. Don't think there's something special in you. Then he continues the warning even stronger in verse 21. Listen, for God did not spare the natural branches. Ready for this? Neither will He spare you. If God was willing to break off a natural branch in the vine, what do you think He's going to do toward you as a wild olive branch if you act like them? You're not any safer than they were. That's the point that Paul is making. So let me make an application point here, and then I'm going to answer some hard questions. And I think probably the hard question is already circulating in your mind. But first of all, let me answer this question. How are we then to live before God as Gentile believers? How, are, how is any believer to live before God? 
We are to live before God continually humble and daily grateful for the salvation that was lavished upon us that we did not in any way, in any degree deserve. In fact, if we would have gotten what we deserved, it would have been the wrath of God period. But He lavished His grace on us. If you're saved, God lavished His grace upon you, chose you because of who He is, not because of who you are. It's because He had grace on you. That's the position that we need to take. But then look at the further warning and explanation in verse 22, and then we'll get to the hard question. Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. You see the distinction of these two things. The kindness and the severity of God. Kindness toward who? Well, kindness toward the Gentile in saving them. Severity toward who? Severity toward the Jew. Listen, severity toward those who have fallen. That's the Jew the branches that were broken off. And God's kindness to you, that's the Gentile that He has saved, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, listen to the warning, stronger than the other, you too will be cut off. That's a strong warning. So here's the problem that leaps off the page. In light of what we have been looking at in Romans for months and months, even years. Yes, we've been here five years in Romans. About half the Sundays through the last five years, about 49%, I checked it out, of the Sundays in the last five years have been preached from Paul's letter to the church at Rome going verse by verse through this letter. And what we have seen time and time again, particularly in the last year and a half or two, primarily from Romans chapter 8, is that the believer that is saved is secure and forever saved. I mean, he hammers that truth for 39 verses, nonstop and rapid sequence, all the way down to the 8th chapter of Romans. It begins in Romans 8.1 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You're in Christ. You are saved. Never can you come under the judgment of God ever again. No condemnation. Next, what about Romans 28, Romans 8, 29, and 30, where it says, and so strongly implies, communicates that everyone that God foreknows, He predestines. And everyone He predestines, He calls to salvation. And everyone He calls to salvation, He justifies. And everyone He justifies, He glorifies. They will be with Him forever in heaven. Where do you fall through the cracks there? It's everyone foreknown. They are all glorified. What about Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39 
Paul writes about how the powerful grace of God is strong enough to always keep you in God's love, that nothing, nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. And he lists all the things in the cosmos and says it's absolutely impossible for the believer to be separated from the love of God. And so wait a minute. That will sound like verse 21 and 22. Verse 21 and 22 talk about that He won't spare us. Verse 22 says, we'll be cut off like the Jews were. How are we to understand that? Is this a contradiction in the Word of God? Absolutely. I believe the answer to that is absolutely no. Just like Paul's other emphatic statements, absolutely not. See, the problem is with our understanding, not with the truth of God's Word. One of the great principles of interpretation of the Word of God, one of the primary rules for interpreting the Word of God is that Scripture, rightly understood, never contradicts Scripture. It's our understanding that needs to be aligned, not the Scripture that needs to be changed. What we have here is a paradox, not a contradiction. I can show you so many verses that not only the All of chapter 8 from verse 1 to verse 39, the great Magna Carta of the truth of the security of the believer, but I could give you so many others. Let me just give you a few to further drive the truth home that the believer that is saved is forever saved and secure. John chapter 6 verse 37, the first three or four of these are going to come from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus said, all that the Father in John 6 37... All that the Father gives me will come to me. All the Father gives will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is really direct. That is really direct. John 6.39, Jesus goes on to say, And this is the will of Him, His Father, who sent Him that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Listen, if it is the Father's will, as Jesus said, that Jesus would lose nothing that God had given Him, that includes no one. The nothing has to include the no one. So that means that If Jesus is going to do the will of God, everyone that the Father gives him, that Jesus will raise that person up at the last day, take them to glory with him. So here's the question. Did Jesus fail in his mission? Are we ready to say that he didn't fully accomplish the will of God? No, we know that he did. Why? Because he didn't lose one, not one. Never will he lose one that the Father gives him. Everyone will be raised up at the last day. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Let me read that again. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. How many fall through the cracks of Christ's hand? None, not one, not zero, not ever. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and he says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty good prayer. Pretty good desire. Then listen to what He says. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who's the one that calls us? It's God. And what He's saying here is that the God who calls is surely, absolutely, undeniably going to accomplish what He calls for. He is going to keep your whole body, soul, and spirit blameless at the day of Christ Jesus. That's all the way to the final day, what that's referring to. So in other words, everyone that God calls to Himself, He's going to keep blameless all the way to the last day, the final day, the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. I know I'm going fast, but I want to get it all in here this morning. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. If you're called, you're going to receive the promised what? If you're called, hello church, if you're called, you're going to receive the promised what? What kind of inheritance? Eternal. How long is eternity? Pretty long. <laughs> is eternity 10,000 years? No. Is it 100 years? Is it 10 years? Can you be saved for five years and have eternal life and then not be saved? No, that's not eternity. The calling means that you receive an eternal inheritance. It's the guarantee of God. Philippians 1, chapter 6, Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Who began a good work in us? God did. Who's the one that carries on the good work God does. Who's the one that completes the good work God does? That's what Paul says here. He's basing the security of the believer, the perseverance of the believer on the very nature and the character of God Himself. In other words, your security and salvation is as guaranteed as the person of God. Wow! That's incredible! That's undefeatable! That's forever. That's guaranteed. That's unstoppable. You see, the clear, continuous teaching of Scripture is that those that are saved are saved. And then, wait a minute, Romans chapter 11 and the Scriptures of warning. And there are many other Scriptures like this that seem to be saying on the surface that you can be a part of Christ and then broken off. You can be in Christ and then cut off. How are we to understand those warning passages of Scripture? Well, I think there's a few ways that we need to receive those. What we need to do is to make sure that in our Christianity 
that we don't presume upon the grace of God. You understand what I mean by that? That we don't think that we're something special, that we don't think that, man, we can just, now that we're in, do whatever we want to do. That's presuming upon the grace of God. That's treating the grace of God with contempt. We better not do that. That's why the warning passages of Scripture are there. You see, what the warning passages of Scripture do is that they are one of the means of grace that God gives us to keep us pursuing Him and a holy lifestyle. You see, God is sovereign in that He determines the ends. He determines salvation for people. But He's not only sovereign in determining the end, He also is the one that has determined the means to the end. He's the one that's determined how He's going to get a person from here all the way to glory. And how's he going to do that? Well, one way he's going to do it is he gives us warning passages in Scripture where he says to us, don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't think that you can just now live however you want and do whatever you want and you're in and you're safe. That's treating the grace of God with contempt. That's a slap in the face of the grace of God. Don't do that. Listen to the warnings of Scripture. You see, those warning passages are really good in the heart of a true believer because a true believer that reads those, one that's really saved, has experienced the grace of God, they take those appropriately and they say, oh Lord, help me to live right. Help me to examine myself to see if I'm really in the faith. But you know what an imposter will do? Do you know what somebody that thinks they're saved that really isn't saved will do, they'll look at times at Scriptures like the warnings and they'll say, oh, that's not for me. I don't need to read those. I'm in. I'm saved. I don't need to worry about that anymore. If warning of passages of Scripture are given for believers, they're written to believers. They're intended to be a part of the means of grace that God uses in our life to help us lean in to personal holiness, to lean in to living the kind of life that God wants us to live. We need to look at the warning passages of Scripture like this and take them to heart and examine ourselves with them and say, Oh God, am I right with you? Instead of dismiss them and say, Oh man, I can just... Wipe that out of my Bible. I don't need that. I'm in. Don't do that with the grace of God. So application. First or Second Corinthians three thirteen five. Second Corinthians thirteen five says this. Here's a great application for this text. Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Do you see what he's saying there? Examine your heart. Examine your own life. See if you truly are in the faith. Test yourself. Scripture tells us to do that. And then he says, here's the truth. You can be either in Jesus Christ unless you really aren't. That there's some people in the church that think they are that really aren't in the faith. And what we need to do with these warning passages of Scripture is to test ourselves. 
That's a great application point for us as individuals. Not only we talk to you about a, a grand scale, a national scale, uh, James Montgomery Boyce just writes about this. I really appreciated uh, a study that I was reading related to this. I'm just going to give you a little bit of it, but it's really profound. You see, what would be helpful for us is to use the text in a similar way today that Paul used the text Because in Paul's day, there was a group of people who had had the promises of God, the Jews, who had a great history of seeing the power of God, the Jews, who had an incredible history of having the presence of God dwell with them, among them, the Jews. And what happened is that they went apostate. They rejected God. They rejected the Savior that He sent. And so God cut them off, the vast majority of them as a nation, and just saved a remnant for Himself. Let's do that to the text and our day. Let's consider historical realities of that and bring that right up to our day. Did you know that down through history there are places, there are people groups that were incredibly blessed by God that had the promises of God and a great heritage of those promises of God as theirs and the power of God displayed among them and the presence of God among them just like the Jews had in history following the beginning of the church, i give you one example. Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor was the very first region of the world that was evangelized, and primarily by Paul and those that he trained up incredible move of the Spirit of God sweeping across that whole region. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers being saved. In fact, by the year 1013, this is 60 years after the life of Paul, the death of Paul, the Roman governor complained to the Roman emperor that the, this new, quote, Christian faith was affecting the entire old worship patterns of the people of Rome. People were neglecting the ancient gods and the temple sacrifices and revenues had fallen off. Christianity so impacted that culture and even infiltrated Roman culture that their incredible pagan religion with all their gods was dwindling. People weren't doing it anymore. Why? Because they were believers. Incredible impact and influence. Do you know what the truth is in modern day Turkey today? When I heard this a few years ago, I almost couldn't believe it. There are about 75 million people in Turkey. The large inflated estimates of the number of believers there is 100,000. Here's what that means. One in 750 people is a believer. That's the inflated number. We have a missionary that we've supported for a number of years that ministers in Turkey and tries to 
carry out the gospel in Turkey and plant churches in Turkey. Here's what he told me. He believes that the true number is 7,000. Out of 75 million people, 7,000 believers. That is one to every 10,714 people. Incredible blessing that became apostate and they were broken off. Let me give you one more story of the church in the Roman era under Constantine. This is in 300s AD. The emperor Constantine, there was an incredible couple hundred years of persecution in the first 200 years of the church. There was incredible persecution, brutal, horrific persecution of Christians. And then Constantine, the emperor of Rome, had a vision. And I won't go into all the details, but he claimed to have met Christ and committed his life to Christ. And what he did coming out of that is that he made Christianity the sanctioned religion of Rome. And instead of being persecuted, now it was promoted. Guess what happened to the church in the Roman Empire? It moved into the Dark Ages, what we call in church history the Dark Ages, to the point that by the middle, late to Middle Ages, the Western church was selling salvation through what they called indulgences. Caused Martin Luther to take his 95 thesis and tack them to the door of the chapel in protest to what was taking place in an apostate church. Here's the point. Here's the point. History has shown us that the same thing that happened with the Jews happens to other people groups that have incredible blessings of God and the Word of God and the presence and the power of God that in their prosperity, like <coughs> the Christians under Constantine's time and, time and forward, that that affluence led into complacency and that complacency led into apathy and that apathy led into apostasy and they were cut off. What about America? What about America? Let me ask you a question. Let me make a statement before I do that. Did you know that America began as a church relocation project? That is the history of this country. They don't tell you that in the school books, but that is the truth. There was the fleeing of religious persecution from our home country in England over here so that we could worship according to the dictates of our heart. Church Relocation Project. Do you think today that Christianity has the same level of influence in our country that it did in the founding days? Does anybody think that? No. Let me make it much simpler. We didn't live back then. Does Christianity today have the influence it did 15 years ago, 10 years ago in this country? No. It's my concern. Affluence 
leads to complacency and complacency to apathy and apathy to apostasy. That's the spiral we're going down as a country. And what happened to the Jew? God is not a respecter of persons. If he broke off a wild olive, a, a natural olive branch from the vine, he certainly will do it to a wild olive branch, a bunch of Gentiles connected to the vine. We need to be praying for our country, pleading for the mercy of God on our, in our country. And we need to be believers. This goes back to the application point to every believer. We need as believers to be leaning into living for God in holiness because the world is not going to see any difference in the life of a believer unless we do that. They're not going to think there's anything to this Christianity if we are living the same way in the motions of sin that they live in. What we need to do is not treat the grace of God contemptuously. We need to listen to the warnings and lean in to holiness and pursue God with a passion and pray for our country that God would have mercy and bring a revival. That's what I'm convinced that we need to do. Would you join me in prayer? Please stand. Father, I know that was fast and furious, but I believe that you wanted me to communicate that this morning, and I trust you, God, with the results. I've done my best to lift up Jesus, show that faith in Him is the only way, and the Warning given to us, the Gentile believers, to pursue holiness before you. Let that truth settle deeply in our hearts. Water it there. Let it take root. Bear fruit unto your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.